Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and I am one of the hosts, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Dr. Fitz. And this is the podcast where we go and talk about high-yield orthopedic information. If this is your first time listening to this, welcome, welcome, welcome. And go and hit that subscribe button if you're a returning listener. Welcome back. And let's get into today's episode where we talk about developmental dysplasia of the hip. And we have Dr. Matthew Smits who comes and um, talks to us and breaks down developmental of the hip very well, actually. Um, I was actually listening to this again and taking notes again. So um, he did his residency at Wilfrid Hall uh, Orthopedics. Uh, He completed his fellowship in pediatric orthopedic surgery at the Rady Children's Hospital. And he is currently the chair of the Department of Orthopedics at the San Antonio Military Medical Center. He is also the team physician for the USA Rugby and the men's national team. You can catch him on Twitter at RugbyMD. So without further ado, we hope you guys enjoy this episode on developmental dysplasia of the hip. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. Uh, we're right back at it. We have some more high-yield material, and we have a great guest. We have Dr. Schmitz here with us today. How are you doing, Dr. Schmitz? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for making time for us. We always appreciate it. Uh, we have a, a good topic on us or something. That even when I was on my pediatric rotation, it took me a, uh, a while just to kind of understand this, especially some of the imaging that comes in that that comes to play with this. But uh, de- developmental dysplasia of the hip, so DDH, uh, that's going to be our topic of the day. Uh, and of course, for those who there's first time listening, I'm Jay, and we also have Wendell on the line as well. Uh, the uh, the better half, I'm here. He has to say something to feel uh, <laughs> important, so we're gonna let him do that. But anyway, uh, we're just going to jump right into this, and you know. For the, the people who've listened before, you already know how we start this off. We like to get to know our guests a little bit. So, Dr. Smith, uh, just going to throw some questions out there to you. Uh, sure. What's something you wish you would have known uh, that you know now that you wish you would have known going into practice? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, residency and even medical school, it's this combination of trying to learn all that you can from various mentors, both good and bad. And as soon as you're an attending on your own, you're essentially that conglomeration of all the good and bad things that happen to you. So sometimes I wish I had taken, you remember the good stuff, that's easy to remember, but sometimes I wish I'd taken a better note of what didn't work well, either the way attendings dealt with patients or the way they dealt with students, because I think that's important to draw back on as you as you forge your own path and, and make your own way as, as an attending. So that's, that's something I would tell all the residents out there is that the, the five or six years may seem like it, it drags on forever, but it goes by quickly. So take good notes, not just on the orthopedics, but on the personal interactions as well. Absolutely. That's a, uh, yeah, I think that's solid advice. I wish, uh, well, not that I'm an attending, but that, that's solid advice. I hope there's other attendings on here listening um, or even, you know, residents here listening that are taking note from everything that they're about to learn or going going to learn here in the next couple of years. And uh, another question that we had for you is, uh, do you have any interests outside of orthopedics, things that you like to do for fun? Yeah, so I am an avid sports fan, um, collegiate and NFL football, but also um, I'm also one of the team doctors for the USA rugby team. And so rugby is something I got involved with with when my uh, collegiate football career was over and I, and I played throughout medical school. Now I take care of the U.S. team. So it's a, it's a little bit of a fringe sport. It's so not as popular here in the States, but I've been able to travel around the world uh, and uh, participate as a team position. So rugby is one of my passions. Um, and so, you know, I, I do encourage everyone to have some sort of outside interest that doesn't necessarily revolve around orthopedics. And so team sports is more of, of being, or a, as a team physician, you're more of a general practitioner for the whole team. Now, more commonly, it's orthopedic injuries, uh, but it kind of keeps your just general doctor skills well honed as well. 
Yeah, I was just, uh, you know, that's, I think that's a really uh, interesting thing. And, and so I know there's a lot of people that may be thinking about sports or thinking about like covering a team. Like what actually does that entail? Does that mean, you know, anytime something happens, you're the one that, that calls or you travel around with all their different games? Like how, uh, like, like in reality, how is being a team doctor? Yeah, it all depends on what level you're at, right? So if you're a, a physician for the high school, then you're covering their Friday night football games, but then also seeing other kids from the school as well, volleyball players, et cetera. Collegiate, most people know what the professional and collegiate team docs do where they travel with the team. And if you're on the international, you do do periodic international trips with the team, but a lot of it's kind of coordinating care. If you think about an international team has players that are playing professionally in Europe and different countries, and you're trying to help coordinate their care, give them second opinions, help steer them towards someone if they're going to have a surgery. So it's like a, it's a weird kind of quarterback where you're trying to coordinate care through different continents and different time zones to make sure that the athlete gets the best care possible. But mainly it's there to be as an advocate for the athlete as well for safety uh, and, and in their uh, personal and professional lives. Okay. All right. That's good to know. And, you know, before, I, I guess that was going to serve as our third question, uh, but I was just doing a quick research and uh, I think something popped up that <laughs> caught my attention. Dr. Smith, are you the same Dr. Smith that uh, did a, like a question review for, I, I guess, Ortho Bullets uh, podcast as well? Yeah. So I've been, uh, I've been a, a lecturer for Miller Review course, which is one of the biggest uh, orthopedic review courses and a number of years back they partnered with did some stuff with ortho bullets so I ended up doing an, an anatomy lecture they, they took one of my Miller review lectures and we turned it into a podcast for ortho bullets but now that now that Miller review course is owned by JBJS and so I work with JBJS and I can I think I've done 10 or 11 years I've been on faculty for the Miller review course giving lectures on basic science or anatomy or more recently it's been on pediatric orthopedics nice yeah, that's nice. pretty neat that is pretty neat. Yeah, it's pretty good. So, so my hobbies, as you say, involve orthopedics, just just uh, not at home. Yeah. All right. All right. Sounds good. Um, and yeah, Miller's Review, for those who's listening, if you can get access to that or uh, do the course, I, I've seen some things from it and I think it's pretty solid. So that's just a little plug for Miller's Review for anyone who's listening. Uh, but okay, I guess we can probably get get uh, into the case here. Let's do it. Uh, so let's say you're a resident and you get a page is from the neonatal unit. Uh, you have a let's say a, a ten day old, uh, ten day ten day old baby who you were consulted on. They say that they have some findings concerning for hip dysplasia that they saw on ultrasound. Uh, okay, so. As far as you know, baby had a normal birth history, no, uh, no disorders, no difficulty with, uh, no difficulty with the actual birthing process itself. Uh, so, kind of where where do we start as far as uh, history and physical when we when we go to see this child? Yeah, I think you hit on it. The the, the first thing is the history. So you want to know if it was a normal vaginal delivery or if they had to do a cesarean section and then why they had to do a cesarean section what you're looking for is to make sure that it wasn't a breech position and sometimes the family won't necessarily know that they'll just you have to dig it out and oh we had a c-section because the baby's head wasn't down uh, and so is there is you know the 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 board answer or that what they test you on in your oity is the, the associated risk factors so um, firstborn female or family history so those are things you want to get from your from your um, initial history and family mm -hmm. history uh, and then you want to find out, is there anything else, any other abnormalities uh, that, because this can be associated with torticollis. Um, you want to know, uh, again, if it's a second child, did the older children have any issues? Or more frequently, I always ask, did mom have, have issues as a child where she had to wear a brace or had some sort of treatment for hip disorder? So that's your, your basic history that you're taking care of. And then when you examine the child, you want to examine them from head to toe. Again, looking for any sort of other uh, positive or potential associated things like that like a torticollis or metatarsis inductus, some of the things that we call quote unquote packaging problems. Look at their spine, make sure there's no signs of any um, myelomeningeal seal, et cetera. And then the, the, the meat of the examination is the actual hip exam. And what you wanna do is, is you wanna abduct the hips and see first off, do they have good symmetric hip abduction greater than 60 to 80 degrees. And so what I try to teach our residents is that if you can't abduct the hips more than 60 degrees in a newborn, you gotta be really cautious and, and be suspicious. 
but you can be fooled if, if it's a bilateral uh, hip dislocation where either hip doesn't, you, you might think it looks symmetric to the other side, but if it's not 60 degrees with 90 degrees being essentially horizontal to the bed, um, then you need to be worried about that. And so the, the, the things that we look are is the Galeazzi sign, which is a, an apparent limb length discrepancy where it looks like that femur shorter. And what that represents is that the femoral head is actually sitting posterior to the acetabulum, so that hip is dislocated. Uh, and so that, that's the Galeazzi sign. And then what we're really looking for is Ortolani and Barlow maneuver. And so the, the way to kind of think about this is that the, the uh, Barlow maneuver is that the hip is in at rest and you're able to subluxate or dislocate the hip in an adducted position with a, with a posterior directed force. So at rest, that hip sits in and you're able to, it's a dislocatable hip. An Ortolani positive hip is a hip that is naturally out at rest and you are able to reduce it by abducting the hip or moving the knees outward. And so what I try to teach our residents is that an Ortolani positive hip is already more severe than a, than a Barlow positive hip because that Ortolani positive hip sits out at baseline. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. That makes perfect sense. I think that was um, one of the things that I didn't quite understand going into uh, going into my pediatrics rotation. And one of the PAs set me straight. And I was like, oh, man, because, you know, the, 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 there's a picture that says, like, Barlow's bad and Ortolani because you can Barlow because you can dislocate him. It's a cartoon. And I was like, oh, you know, Barlow, this, this is awful. You know, they're, they're, they're Barlow positive. And they're like, actually, it's Ortolani uh, positive is actually, you know, indicative of a, a more severe disease so yeah that's that's totally correct and what I try to tell folks is that hip dysplasia is this whole spectrum right it's a spectrum from a, a shallow socket to a hip that's out at rest and there's everything in between there's hips that um, are in but are easily dislocatable there's hips that subluxate there's hips that are out but are easily relocatable and then there's there's hips that won't go in so it's this whole spectrum that you're trying to trying to treat and is, is, I know we, you spoke about torticol as being something that is associated with uh, DDH. Is, how often are you seeing like breach presentation? Like, does that play a part in, uh, in developmental hip dysplasia? Does that, you know, or, or is that something we should be on the lookout for if you have, a, have an infant that you're worried about this? Yeah, I think that breach positioning is, the, is probably the biggest risk factor. Uh, and so uh, a lot of us that take care of baby hips actually recommend if there's any question at all, but if there's a breech positioning, then to go ahead and get a screening ultrasound. You know, in Europe, they're doing, in various countries, they're doing screening ultrasounds on all newborns. We haven't proven that to be cost effective and, we, and we're able to detect it through the good care that we have here. But I think that that, that breech positioning is one of the, the biggest red flags or biggest risk factors. And so that would, that would warrant me really um, taking a close look and probably considering an ultrasound in, the, in those early stages. I was just going to say, and you, you just mentioned it about, you know, some of the studies being done, um, looking at everybody getting an ultrasound, because I know there were some studies um, that were out there, I forget exactly where it was published, that actually looked at, um, looked at, at babies that, and, that ended up being um, Barlow Ortolani positive, and the sensitivity, and how many of those uh, patients were accurately, uh, or accurately diagnosed just from physical exam findings without the ultrasound and it was supposed to be like uh, hip experts that were doing these uh, physical examinations and pretty much the overall conclusion was that from that study was that we may not be as good with our physical exam as, as we thought we were uh, for detecting you know um, dislocatable hips or developmental dysplasia in these newborns. Yeah I, I, you know I agree with that and then if you look at that kind of argument on the other end of the spectrum is that if you ultrasound every hip, you're gonna get these kind of borderline ones that may lead us to overtreat some of them. And, and it's, it's not that the cost is expensive, but there is a little bit of a psychological cost to having a child wear a harness, not from a child's perspective, but from a parenting perspective as well. Uh, and so that's kind of the, those are the two edges of the argument. Do you overtreat versus not detect them all? And so I think that you know here in the States, we have a pretty good balance between those in, in, in imaging those that are at high risk or that there are suspicions for. Because what we don't see a lot of here is the missed, the missed diagnosis. Now, I do some mission work and I go down to Ecuador um, every year, except for <laughs> obviously not this year with travel. Um, but what we see down there is where they're not getting any um, uh, perinatal care is that the, the diagnosis gets missed and doesn't get picked up till much later in life. And we can talk about that when we talk about the treatment options. So we're doing a good job here in the States, um, but, but you did highlight kind of the, some of the shortcomings of, of the, the exam findings. 
Yep. And so we pretty much already kind of touched on it, but as far as when, when we are concerned for possible hip dysplasia, what is the, the imaging uh, that you want to get on these kids as well? Sure. So if they're under the age of six months, uh, then you want to get an ultrasound. And the reason is, is because that when, when we look at an x-ray, we're looking at actually ossification and, and the proximal femur in a majority of your acetabulum simply isn't ossified at this young. So, so you can't really see anything on an x-ray. So an ultrasound is, is a much a better way to detect and see what that structure is because you can look at that non-ossified femoral head and also look at the non-ossified portion of the, of the acetabulum. Uh, to really to really see what that what that cartilage structure is going to look like with an ultrasound. And what are some of the things that we're looking for on ultrasound? I know there are different angles and, and numbers yeah. that we we have to know about. So what are some of the things that we're looking for? Yeah, so th they're going to test you on this. And the, the easiest way for me to think about it is whenever they present you a test, it's essentially like an AP X-ray that's turned on its side. Okay, so the first thing that you want to look at is the femoral head. That's the easy thing to pick out on an ultrasound, the round structure. Mm -hmm. so you find the femoral head, and then you can go down the, the line of the ilium, and does it bisect the femoral head? Is 50% is or more than 50% of that femoral head covered by the socket? Uh, what you'll see in dysplastic hips is that it's typically less than that. And then the other thing that we test frequently is the alpha angle. And what that represents is, is it's essentially the complement of the acetabular index. So it's a line that goes down the ilium and then one that um, is in line with the joint. Uh, so if you look at an acetabular index on a plane radiograph, that's a horizontal line through the triradiate cartilage and then the ossified portion of the acetabulum. And so this is the complement of that. So what we're looking for is an alpha angle that's less than 60. So a lower value is better. And what that means is that as that value decreases, your acetabular index, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, you want it greater than 60 because as that alpha angle increases above 60, then the complement, your acetabular index decreases. And so th that's kind of the hardest thing when you're used to looking at x-rays and an AP x-ray where superior is top is, is if you look at that ultrasound, you just turn it, rotate it 90 degrees so it's on its side. That's essentially like looking at an AP x-ray. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, we don't, uh, pretty much the research shows that it's really not much advantage to screen everyone, every child with a ultrasound. Who do you think needs, uh, needs an ultrasound? I guess, which, which kids are you, are you recommending that you get this ultrasound for? Sure. So anyone that, that there's a physical, physical exam finding that's concerning. So if you think about who does the, the examinations, it's, it's the pediatricians, the OB in the, at the initial visit, and then the pediatricians that they're, when they go back at one and two weeks and four weeks to make sure that they're gaining weight and healthy. So if there's any concern with a click or if they feel that there's some sort of um, instability of the hip, I think those warrant a workup. I think that um, anyone that has a strong family history uh, warrants an ultrasound. And I'd say that breech position probably warrants an ultrasound as well. Now, th these don't need to be done emergently, but sometime in the first four to six weeks of, of life, they can get an ultrasound. Okay, perfect. Uh, thank you for explaining that. And we want to make a quick transition, um, and then we'll transition back into talking about infants and how to treat them. But since we're already talking about imaging, say this was a patient who was a little bit older, and they're out of that time frame, you get ultrasound. What are we looking for when we get x-rays? What x-rays are you getting? And then what are some of the, the you know, the angles of the index? I know you, you mentioned one a little bit earlier, but can you kind of go through that? Yeah, so once they get above, it, it's between six and nine months. Nine months is an easy one. And what you're looking for is you're actually trying to look for early ossification of the femoral head. Once they get to about nine months, you can get an AP x-ray, there's some debate most of us in our, in our hospitals, it comes as an AP and a frog leg. There's some debate that the frog leg doesn't necessarily add anything in because you can see everything on an AP x-ray. But what you're looking for is, is first, you want to look for that femoral head ossification. And so Hillgriner's line is a horizontal line that um, uh, goes between the triradiate cartilage. And uh, Perkins' line is a line that kind of goes down the, the lateral aspect of the acetabulum. And what you're looking for is you're looking for femoral head ossification that is low, so below Hillgriner's and medial to Perkins' line, okay? The next, the next index that you're looking for is your acetabular index, and that's the, the angle between Hillgriner's line and a line from the triradiate that goes up through the lateral edge of the sore seal or the weight-bearing portion 
of the acetabulum. And what you're looking for there is, is uh, for it to normalize. And generally, if it's under 30, less than 25 degrees in patients over the age of six months. And so that gets lower over time, but less than 25 degrees is kind of uh, within the first six months to nine months of life is what you're looking for. As that child gets, and now these are all in, you're looking at one-year-old and two-year-old hips. As that child gets older, above the age of five or more, or uh, even towards uh, uh, skeletal maturity, then we start looking at thing called the lateral center edge angle, which is essentially is a, is a um, shows us how much of the femoral head is covered. So it's a line that's from horizontal that, that goes from the center of the femoral head perpendicular to horizontal. So that's your reference line, and then. Um, the angle that's formed with the line that intersects the lateral most aspect of your acetabulum. And what you're looking for there is, is that over 25 is normal uh, and um, less than, or the range between 20 and 25 is considered this, this borderline and under 20 degrees is dysplastic. Uh, and so that's the lateral center edge angle. Uh, the other thing on the on the infants radiograph is Shinton's line or Shinton's arc, and this is uh, from the obturator foramen. You can see the inferior portion of your um, superior ramus should form a nice arc with the inferior portion of the femoral head neck junction. So if you see a break in that line or a break in that arc, it, again it represents that the hip is subluxated or dislocated. And, and what we're seeing with these subluxations is that 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 femoral head is posterior and lateral, but what you're seeing on the radiograph is that it's more superior uh, than where it should be. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. You, you know, this, some of these lines were, it, it took me the longest to kind of get an understanding of this when I, because I was actually working with kind of like a, a hip, a hip specialist when I was on my PED service. And uh, it took me a while because he could just look at it. He could look at a radiograph and shot, shot off all these angles with him like, <laughs> you know, two minutes, I'm over here trying to pull, push all these lines across the screen and lines going all in the wrong place. But I'm glad that you uh, <laughs> kind of went through them all to explain them. And for our listeners, I know it's kind of hard to catch on to some of these things just listening. But if you have the time, we have a video that kind of has all these uh, angles on there and it could probably help you out a lot. Uh, yeah. Yeah, don't you love it when uh when you like your your attending's doing something and you see the patient and you have the X-rays up and you draw your lines and you think you got it right and then they come and erase everything. Oh yeah, <laughs> put the whole lines up. Oh yeah, that's me all day with either this or scoliosis. He might pick a different vertebra to start with or something <laughs> yeah. like that. It's all my lines. They always off by a little bit, but I'm like, oh, I gave it a, a real good shot here. But that, but the, that's what comes with the practice, right? Is looking at hundreds of, and thousands of X-rays, and, and what I try to tell folks is that you know, like that practice is good, and it and, and it shows that you're thinking about what what the potential diagnosis is. And so the easiest way for when I explain it to parents, um, I, we're talking about dysplasia, whether in in babies or I treat adult dysplasia as well, is that the the weight bearing surface of the acetabulum, your sourcelum, and that sourcelum is, is French for eyebrows. When you look like look at an AP, uh, you can kind of see that sclerotic weight bearing surface, and that sourcelum should be relatively horizontal. If you get kind of the 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 rock, the old wrestler, the rock, where he gets that elevated eyebrow and that and that eyebrow sloping up, what that represents is that socket is not well developed, and that leads to instability. It leads to decreased coverage with which ultimately leads to early degeneration of that hip joint. So what you're looking for is to make sure that that, that eyebrow, that sore seal is as horizontal as possible. And then we then extrapolate that back to all these indexes that we use when a child is one or two or three years old. Nice. And, and at this point, I guess we, we can switch back kind of towards the infants. So now let's say we, we, we're pretty sure uh, this young kid, you know, we say 10 days old, versus you know a couple months old and we're, we're pretty sure they have ddh what is some the the treatment what is the treatment plan or algorithm that we're going to go through with this baby yeah so in in the younger kids under six months the first line of treatment is some sort of harness or brace wear and so when you think about um, hip dysplasia in an infant the, the goals of treatment should be number one to get the hip in number two to keep it in and then number three to avoid complication okay so if you think about an, an Ortolani positive hip, that is a hip that is out at rest and you need to get that hip back in. A Barlow positive hip, that's, that's easier because that hip is in at rest. You want to keep it from coming out. So how do we keep that hip from coming out? Well, um, you know, first off, it depends on how young the child is. If, if you've got, a, in this case, a 10-year-old and we think it's Barlow positive, I would get an ultrasound and then 
consider even observation because a lot of this just might be immaturity, especially if the baby's two or three weeks early, mm -hmm. is that it will resolve on its own. But, but say we've gotten into the point where the child is, say, four weeks old, and we have a Barlow positive hip, we want to keep that hip in. Well, the way that that hip is kept in is with abduction and flexion of the hips. And so that's what a pablo harness does, is that it, it helps flex the hips and abduct, abduct the hips because we want to prevent hip extension and uh, hip adduction. So similar when we think about risk factors or, or why there are cultural differences in the rates of, of DDH, we know that when I go down to Ecuador, the, the rates of DDH are a lot higher because of um, the cultural norm of swaddling down there. And they do a very tight swaddle with the, the hips extended and adducted. And, and that most likely is what's leading to our increased rates of DDH down there. So the, so the pavlic harness helps prevent that. It's the opposite of that. So the same thing with Ortolani hip, Ortolani positive hips, you reduce them by abducting. And so the harness helps you do that. And so what you want to do is that you want to closely monitor, especially those Ortolani positive hips. That's the most severe uh, kind of uh, cohort is you want to closely monitor it because it, it may not necessarily, that hip may not relocate automatically with placement of the harness. It may take a week or two weeks for that, for that femoral head uh, to kind of find its home. And so what we do is we apply the harness in the clinic and then we bring them back at weekly intervals for the first two or three weeks and, and repeat the ultrasound with the harness on to make sure that that femoral head is um, seeding into the acetabulum. And that's, what's, that's the critical part here is that both the femoral head and the acetabulum form reciprocally from that contact on the triradic cartilage. And so if you don't have a femoral head that's nicely well reduced, there's going to be developmental problems not only on the acetabular side, but on the femoral head side as well. So you, want to, you, you can apply the harness and then you want to check it. If you are not successful in those first three weeks, then the next step is to consider going to a more fixed uh, abduction orthosis. What you don't want to do is just put the harness on um, with a dislocated hip and then ignore it for six, eight, 10 weeks. Because what can happen is that femoral head, if it's sitting posteriorly, you can get quote, what's called pavlic harness disease where you get um, wearing away of the posterior acetabulum as that femoral head is sitting there. And so that's why it's really important to check them. And so I explained this to the, to the families on that first, um, that first visit that, you know, we're, we're entering into a long-term relationship uh, that I'm going to be seeing your child for the next few years, but it's really important that we see each other frequently over the first couple of weeks. The other thing that I'm checking on is to make sure that the, the uh, child is firing their quadriceps and that there's not a femoral nerve palsy. And the more difficult hips that you have to flex the hip higher, you can get an, a, a femoral nerve palsy. And the way that's picked up is that the, the kids just stop kicking their legs. And so the first line of treatment for that is to decrease the flexion or take the harness off. And what that kind of represents is those are the more difficult uh, hips to reduce. The majority of hips, greater than 90% or so, are successfully treated with a harness. But that 10% are, are the more difficult reductions. Those are the ones that have issues with um, uh, femoral nerve palsy, et cetera. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And yes, sir. I'm glad you mentioned that because that kind of talks about which kids don't need to be in the brace, right? So uh, if they're kind of sitting out on the extremes of flexion and abduction, then that may not be a one that's um, good to be in a pavlic harness because you have to start worrying about these other things like the femoral nerve palsy versus the AVN. Um, Right. And the other one is um, teratologic. So bilateral dislocation. So that goes back to kind of your, your history when you're first talking to the child. Is this associated with uh, another condition, myelomeningocele, something like those are ones that are not going to be treated or, or successfully treated with a harness. Um, so if it's bilateral, you need to start looking at, at are there, you know, what, what caused both of these hips to come out? Is there something else associated with, associated with this child's diagnosis? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and just to, to sum it up. So if you have a, you know, a newborn that comes in four or five days and, and, and they're Ortolan and they're Barlow positive, those are the ones that you'll have them come back in four, four weeks or so get an ultrasound. And if their hips are still out, then you'll, then you'll treat them and you'll, and you'll put them in a, in a pavlic harness. Um, well, to clarify, correct? if they're Ortolani positive, then I would treat them right away. That hip, that, yeah, that, that hip is out at rest. Mm -hmm. If they are Barlow positive, meaning a four-day-old, and I can dislocate their hip, I would probably have them come back in two to three weeks and check them again. Um, that, and, and I don't think you would be wrong in treating that child in the harness as well, but some of those hips, a lot of those hips stabilize on their own, so that goes into that whole over-treatment algorithm, but if the hip is out at rest, so it's an Ortolani positive hip, 
it needs help getting back into the the the, the, the acetabulum. And so those those do need to be treated right away. Right. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. And then, mm-hmm. and then, so um, you know, things to to be worried about, you know, or at least be on the on the lookout for these patients that have these pavlic harnesses that are going to be any type of femoral nerve palsy, which may be caused by you know too much flexion of the hip. And well, can you can you touch on what what pavlic disease is, or you know what what's more associated with that? Yeah. So it's it's again, it's um, when you flex the hip and abduct the hip, you're hoping that that femoral head kind of goes from a posterior dislocation and reduces into the acetabulum. The problem is, is that if you are just riding that femoral head on the posterior acetabulum where it's never fully relocating, but it's still sitting subluxated, that will lead to wear of the, the posterior acetabulum. So, you're, so it's, it's going to, that, that pressure causes the acetabulum to essentially deform. Uh, and so you get this flattening of the posterior lateral acetabulum and, and it can lead to um, femoral head changes as well. So those are the ones that you want to really follow. Over the, an ortolani positive hip, you want to follow it to make sure that you are being successful with the harness treatment and getting it in within the first two to three weeks. Right. And so you you mentioned if, they, if the kid is a little bit older, like six months or so, we probably consider like bracing, like a uh, you know, there's an actual brace, not a pavlic type brace, but there's other braces for older kids. Uh, what if the, the bracing doesn't work? Yeah. Uh, so what's next after that? Yeah. So the next, if they're, if they're young enough, the next would be an attempt at a close reduction. And so a close reduction is done in the operating room under general anesthesia. And we use an addition of, of performing an arthrogram. So we inject dye into the acetabulum, into the hip uh, uh, joint itself. And the reason is because again, a majority of the structures have not ossified. So you're not, you're just looking at the cartilaginous aspect and it's hard to see on an x-ray. But by, by putting an arthrogram, by putting dye into the joint, you can see if you're able to fully reduce that femoral head into the acetabulum. And what you're looking for is a, a what's called a medial dye pool. And so what, in a dislocated hip, you will see that dye kind of coalesce or collect in the acetabulum medial to your femoral head. And you want to see that eliminated, uh, essentially eliminated with a reduction. And a lot of times you can feel it as well. So it's a combination of looking on your arthrogram, but also feeling the reduction uh, of the femoral head sitting in the socket. And so that's the closed reduction. A lot of times uh, there'll be an adductor contracture Contraction, so you need to do an adductor tenotomy as well, can be done percutaneously. And then you want to hold that position in a, in a well-placed hip spike cast. And so under that anesthetic, uh, the, the child's hip is, is put into a, a, a hip spike cast, holding it in about 90 to 100 degrees of flexion, and then abduction to wherever it stays in, right? So we know that as you adduct the hip, the hip wants to dislocate posteriorly. So you want to abduct it. Uh, as much as keeps it in, but understanding that the further abduction you, that you uh, put the hip in greater than 55 to 60 degrees, there's an increased risk of avascular necrosis. Uh, and essentially, the way I kind of think about that is that those are the most unstable hips. The more you have to flex, the more you have to abduct the hip, then that hip is unstable. And so the, the, that um, as an increased risk of AVN, et cetera. And then what we do is under that same anesthetic, they can go down and, and we used to get CT scans on these kids. Now uh, they can do a rapid sequence MRI and um, in about 15 minutes have an answer and, make, and confirm that what you're seeing on the arthrogram that the hip is well is well reduced. Uh, and so that's the whole point is that you wanna put them in a spica cast in a, in a good position so that femoral head is well seated in the socket to help gain stability and keep them in that spica cast for the next three months or so. Now in my practice, I'll, I will generally change that hip spike a cast out in the operating room at the six week time frame, uh, where I'll again repeat an arthrogram to make sure it still looks good. Uh, but, you, but you can uh, get away with a single spike a cast for three months. I just do it for uh, those, those, anyone that's taking care of a spike a cast know they get to be pretty gross after about uh, six weeks. Oh yeah. So we change those and give the kids a little some bath. gross ones. Yeah, they, they can be pretty gross. So um, that, so, so that's a close reduction. Generally, it's treated with about three to four months uh, in a spica cast uh, um, um, uh, to, help it, uh, to help it stay reduced. Right. And, and so kind of just to summarize what you're saying, so you may use an arthrogram, uh, you know, in, in order to make sure that everything uh, lines up the femoral head with the acetabulum the way that you like it. When you're using that arthrogram, you want to look at that, that medial dipole and 
typically I know I know in the books or at least on some of these papers it says less than you know five to six millimeters is indicative of a, a good reduction uh, and then you hold that in place with a spiky cast and then post-operatively you may get that rapid sequence uh, MRI and you may also may do that adductor tenotomy now uh, given the case say you try a close reduction and you're having you know problems with the close reduction uh, and you have to convert to an open reduction what are I guess what would be a reason for you to convert to an open reduction and then what are some of the things that you know I guess classically uh, would impede you from getting a reduction? Sure. So the, the testable things that prevent you from getting a reduction include um, a constricted hourglass capsule. So a constricted capsule as, as that hip is set out. Um, you get pulvinar, which is fiber fatty tissue, which sits in your acetabulum um, that uh, forms when the femoral head isn't concentrically reduced. Um, uh, transverse acetabular ligament at the bottom of your, of your horseshoe of the acetabulum. Uh, in long-standing uh, dislocations, you can get um, a, a ligament of teres can be uh, essentially elongated and pre prevent as a, a blocked reduction. Your inverted limbus, which is the, kind of the precursor to the, the labrum, uh, can, can be a block to reduction. Uh, and then a tight iliopsoas uh, as well. And so these are all things that we start thinking about. Usually it's not gonna be in that six month time frame, but a lot of times the, in, in uh, hips that were missed, it says we get up towards nine months and 12 months. And so I think if you're in that six month time frame, you're left with a couple of options. One is you can convert to an open, a medial approach, uh, or you can wait and delay till they're a little bit older and do an anterior approach. And so a lot of this just has to do with what you're comfortable with. Um, you know, a lot of my mentors grew up in the era where we did a lot of medial approaches, medial Ludloff approach, it's called. The problem with that is you can't necessarily address all of those specific um, blocks to reduction. You can cut the capsule, and that's what you're doing is you're cutting the capsule. You can remove the pulvinar, um, but you're kind of letting the, the femoral head herniate through that constricted capsule through a medial approach. You can, you can cut the TAL, um, but you can't necessarily through that same incision uh, address the, uh, the limbus or the um, um, iliopsoas. And you can't necessarily address any bony pathology, so residual um, uh, uh, dysplasia on the acetabular side. And so there's, depending on people's comfort level, a lot of people are waiting and do an anterior approach when they get to be 15 to 18 months to two years of age. Uh, and the reason that, that people probably feel more comfortable is that, is that there's some series that suggests that there's decreased AVN rates uh, with that. And it's a much more common approach to the hip that hip surgeons are used to. An anterior approach to the hip you learn as a resident through a Smith-Peter approach is the same in a, in a two-year-old child, just everything's a little bit smaller. A medial approach to the hip is, is a difficult window uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a deep dark hole in these, in these babies. And so what we're seeing more commonly done now is, is an anterior approach. We can also address uh, subsequent bony abnormalities as well. Yeah, that uh, medium medial approach, I was thinking I've really, I don't think I've ever seen it. So yeah, I, I can imagine that that just not being as, you know, someone not being as comfortable with that as, as others, right. uh, other approaches for sure. Um, so, okay, we can move on down the line of, uh, you know, treatment, treatment plans for this. We talked about closed reduction. We talked about open reduction. Let's say now our kid is, we can say they're six. Yeah. And what, and we're still dealing with issues of, you know, displeasure to the hip. Yes. So, you know, I think that ideally you'd like to get to them even sooner. A lot of your acetabular remodeling stops probably before age five. Some folks say even before age four. Uh, and so once, so the way I kind of teach our residents is that if you're under the age of uh, four, you can do a, a variety of different um, osteotomies around pelvic osteotomies. Once you get above the age of six, uh, towards 10, we'll kind of talk about that the osteotomies change. And so if they're, if they're young, say, say this child, we were unsuccessful. We, we diagnosed him at 10 days old. We tried the harness. We tried a fixed brace. That didn't work. Um, at, at, say, three months, we tried a, a, a closed reduction in the operating room. That didn't work. And now we're at 18 months, 18, 19 months, and we're going to do an open, open reduction. So with that, you can address both deficits on the femoral side and on the acetabular side. So you can do a shortening osteotomy of the femur, um, a derotational osteotomy where you simply take out a little bit. A lot of these kids will have increased femoral antiversion, so you can decrease the femoral antiversion. Also, just by shortening 
the, the femoral shaft by about a centimeter or so. It helps take some of that pressure off uh, to try and, and help with the stability of the hip. It also decreases the, the risk of avascular necrosis from trying to uh, take a femoral head and forcibly sub, uh, um, place it into the acetabulum. So you can, do, you can address it through either varus or if they're young enough that they're at age 18 months, two years, generally you don't need to do a varus, you can just do a derotational osteotomy. If they're older, age, approaching that age four, you can take out the, the excessive valgus that they have and do a varus derotational osteotomy. Um, then you can, you can also address the acetabular side as well. There's a number of described op, um, um, pelvic osteotomies. The, most common uh, that used to be performed is the Salter osteotomy. And what that is is essentially a cut that goes from the sciatic notch uh, through the anterior ilium uh, between your ASIS and AIIS. And you're kind of dependent on uh, rotating on your uh, pubis and the triradiate cartilage to try and increase that anterior lateral coverage. Uh, at the same time, you can do an open reduction. So we can take out all those blocks that we talked about to to a reduction, you can perform a capsulorophy uh, and then uh, do a um, acetabular osteotomy. And so when we talk about these, there's, there's the reorientation osteotomy that you can use in a young child that's a salter. You can do a volume reducing osteotomy in a young child that's uh, a DEGA osteotomy or a San Diego osteotomy where I train from. Uh, and what that is, is, is you are uh, cutting through the lateral aspect of the ilium down towards your triradiate cartilage and then bending that acetabulum down, bending it on the triradiate cartilage. So this is a volume reducing osteotomy. It decreases uh, the volume of, of this uh, capacious uh, acetabulum. As the child gets older, uh, then you can do uh, um, a a triple osteotomy or a steel uh, osteotomy. And what that does is that includes a cut of the um, all three bones of the of the acetabulum. So you can cut the iliac like a normal salter, but then you add in an ischial cut and a pubis cut. And this is a more rotational because again, what we talked about is that acetabulum really stops remodeling probably around the age of four. And so doing a bending type osteotomy requiring some sort of acetabular remodeling may not be uh, the best choice in a six-year-old that you just presented or a seven-year-old. And so that's when you would do a, a triple anominant osteotomy to try and do a more rotational. And then as they approach skeletal maturity, you can get into some complex options like a, a Gans periostabular osteotomy. Okay, great. I think, um, I, think, I think that was a great overview. And I actually want to rewind a little bit to yeah. our, our femoral osteotomy. So is that typically the the I want to say algorithm, but typically you'd go with a femoral like a femoral derotational osteotomy first, and then if that doesn't work, then you'd be looking at the you know the acetabular osteotomies. Is that generally how you how you look at it, or how do you decide like you know this person we should go with yeah the, you know how do you decide that? That's a great that's a really great question because it depends on how old they are and if you think there's going to be sufficient remodeling on the acetabular side, right? So if you can shorten the femur and take out the femoral, um, uh, the femoral antiversion, then do an open reduction where you can actually remove all those blocks to reduction and get a good capsular, capsular repair, or capsular tightening, then there are some that think that you probably don't need to do an acetabular osteotomy and just let it remodel over its own. So if they were really young, 18 months, that might be something I would consider. More commonly though, is that you're doing the femur to kind of take out your antiversion, shorten it so that you're um, decreasing the force that is necessary to get that. Remember, this hip has never really been in in 18 months, and so you don't want to forcibly uh, relocate it and run the risk of, of uh, pressure on the femoral vessels and avascular necrosis. So you can derotate, take out uh, three quarters or, or a centimeter, uh, get that hip reduced, and then more commonly, I would then add in a bending type acetabuloplasty like a Vega uh, or a San Diego to, to, to help with that femoral coverage. But if you get to them young enough, there, is, there are some people out there that think that it were modeled enough uh, that you don't necessarily need that. And to, cause you know, for the acetabular osteotomies, I know it takes me a while, like I had to read through it a bunch of times, even understanding, and then it'll, it'll be like a couple of days and I'll forget and have to read through it again. <laughs> so um, for the acetabular osteotomies, again, we have them in, in our, our three major groups. And the ones that are the, the bending osteotomies that you say, these are the ones um, that you would likely consider in, um, in patients that are a little bit younger. Is that, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. If they're less than four, then I would consider one of those bending or, or volume reducing osteotomies. So the Dago or a Pemberton. Okay. 
And then, so the patients whose triradiate cartilage are closed, which these bending uh, osteotomies or these, these volume reducing osteotomies may not work, those are the ones that will possibly be getting like the periacetabular osteotomies or, you know, these steel osteotomies. Is that correct? correct? Yes. So if, if they're between the age of four and, you know, 10 or 11 before that triradiate closes, then I would do a steel or a, or a triple osteotomy. Um, and then in my practice, I see a lot of young adults, so age uh, 16 all the way up into the 25, 30. Those are the ones that get a, a Gons periastabular or a Bernice periastabular osteotomy. Jay, you taking notes over there? I know you're, you're quiet and you're all confused and discombobulated. Yeah. <laughs> <You're all laughs> no, right. no. I mean, seriously, though, these, this particular type topic, once you get into the osteotomies, I mean, there, there's whole lectures, and I mean, there's people yeah. who who spent their whole academic career talking about these, uh, you know. And I think one of my uh, attendings, he worked with, uh, I think he trained under, and I hope I'm not saying this wrong. I think it was Guns that he he actually worked under himself, and I hope that makes sense. I hope he yeah. that's not, yeah, he he went and worked with and trained with him and learned how to do it. So I've seen him do some of these osteotomies. And I mean, it is a, the, the procedure is, is a bit long and it's, it's a bit complicated. You have to really know your anatomy, really know how to get the images that you want to make sure you're cutting what you should be cutting. Uh, make sure that your cut is completely through the bone where it should be complete at, that you're not going into the pelvis. It's, it's a lot, <laughs> it's yeah. a lot. And um, so what, what would you say, what is the main goal? Why, why are we doing this and what are we hoping to prevent with these kids? Yeah, so what you're trying to prevent is uh, adult dysplasia. When we, when we talk about reasons for hips to fail, the, the, one, the number one reason for a young adult hip to fail, so get a hip replacement under the age of, say, 50, is from uh, acetabular dysplasia. And so we think of, you know, hip replacement should be an elderly person's procedure, a 75, 80-year-old person. But, but what we've shown over and over again is that dysplasia leads to early failure of that hip joint and need and end-stage osteoarthritis in your 30s and 40s, which is a, is a terrible problem. And so, you know, what we're trying to do in these babies is prevent that uh, by getting the hip in and so that it can form normally. And then what I tell the folks that I'm taking care of is that if at age three, we need to do um, a relatively minor procedure. Now, no operation on the four-year-old is minor but it's a lot more simpler than, than doing a, a periastabular osteotomy when they're 17 or 18. Then what we're trying to do is we're trying to get that anatomy to catch up to what the normal developing side, uh, the normal development is. And again, in, in, in the whole concept of this is, to, is joint preservation, to try and prevent end-stage osteoarthritis. What Gons and, the, and his folks have shown is, is very good survival rates for their periastabular osteotomies and preventing total hip arthroplasty 10 and 20 years down the road. And that's the ultimate, that's the, the ultimate goal. And I tell my, my patients that the goal is to preserve the hip. A side effect is that their pain improves because as you're increasing the coverage of the, of the acetabulum of the femoral head, it's, it's dispersing that force and it's not concentrating that force of the, of the reaction across the hip into a small area of cartilage but dispersing it over a, a bigger area. So some of these things can get really complex. I would, I would, um, talk to your listeners and say there's a great yellow journal joust review article uh, written by one of my mentors, Dennis Wanger, that just looks at the osteotomies and they've got great pictures in there that is, it should be a resource for your in-training exam or before you start a PG rotation. I'll get the year wrong. I think it was probably 2006-ish, but it was, it's in the yellow journal, um, Dennis, uh, excuse me, Dennis Wanger. And he, he really goes through with good pictures and talks about these different osteotomies for childhood treatment of dysplasia. I am making a note of it now, so I can uh, take a take a look at it uh, for sure. So, and you know, I think that's going to be my last question. Is you know, like we said, th these osteotomies are are pretty complicated, and up to this point, I think the the our lecture has been you know pretty straightforward. It's like certain things you need to know, but as far as when it comes to the bony joint pres preservation part of the of this talk, what do you think? you should know as far as going to, you know, OITE and things like that? That's a good question. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that knowing that the, the PAO is the treatment of choice for uh, adult symptomatic dysplasia, because uh, that's, that's at this point, we got good 15, 20 year data on that. And so what they may 
present you with is a, a question that shows um, that the person has a lateral center edge angle of 10 or five degrees, clearly is dysplastic, and then what the treatment option is. And they'll say, you know, hip arthroscopy, they're gonna try and lead you down a path of, of uh, hip scope with a labral tear, but, but we know that that's not the patient population to do that in, but a PAO would be the answer for that. Um, so I think that's what they're gonna ask you for, but more commonly what they're gonna ask you for is um, how to treat that, that uh, three-year-old or a seven-year-old. And so the answer for a seven-year-old would be a steel or a triple innominate osteotomy. And the answer for a three-year-old would be any one of those bending type acetabuloplasties and, and then uh, you know, making sure that you are able to, to describe getting out all the blocks to reduction if it's still dislocated at that point. Dr. Smith, I think that was a, uh, I think this has been an excellent episode. I'll probably go back and listen to this a couple of times before our, uh, our entering the exams and before I go on PEDS again. Uh, I think you did a great job talking about um, DDH, uh, very, very well and thorough job about it. Um, before we close this out here, is there any, any other quick take home points that you think the people listening to this may, uh, should, should get out of it, whether they are a, a new starting attending versus a senior resident or a junior resident about to do their PEDS rotation? Yeah, I think that the, the earlier that you can detect it, the easier the treatment algorithm. It's much easier to wear a harness uh, for a couple, three months than it is to undergo a, a major reorientation of acetabulum, right? And so you really want to really want to pick that up early with, with the things that we talked about, the ultrasound, the physical exam. Uh, I think that's my, what I tell families is that I will, even if we're successful with harness treatment, I still uh, take x-rays on a yearly basis until about the age of five and then take another x-ray around the age of 10 because it's the earlier you can catch it, the, the treatment is easier. So I think that's kind of the, the take home message. I, I think that was great. And um, Dr. Schmitz, before we wrap up here, we always um, give a way for our listeners to contact you, whether or not that's social media that you have versus an email, um, you know, if they had any questions to ask you or just wanted to email and say, this was a great episode. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, is there any way that, you know, they can reach you? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm all over uh, social media. So I'm on Twitter at, at, uh, at RugbyMD. Uh, my Instagram is at RugbyMD. And my Facebook is uh, uh, Facebook slash Schmitz Hip Surgery. And then I'll give you guys my email too. My email is Matt R. Schmitz, S-C-H-M-I-T-Z at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer questions about this or, or uh, hip preservation in the adult as well. Dr. Smith, again, thank you so much for coming on. We hope you all enjoyed this episode just as we loved making this with Dr. Schmitz and really going over developmental dysplasia of the hip. Again, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, thank you for listening. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button and go ahead and leave us a review or rating in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you listen to this on. Even if it's Spotify, go ahead and leave us a review. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Nailed It Ortho. Until next time.